This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse for free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 4, Episode 25, Mating Plumage. I didn't name this episode, Dan did. <laughs> Tagline us. 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. Oh, you did you, it, James. James. Thank oh, you. Excellent. Who needs Howard? Let's get rid of him. <laughs> um, we once again have the talented James Dashner and the lovely Julie Wright, um, oh. who is also talented, though James is not <laughs> yeah. really very lovely. That's true. Um, that is true. Who well are said. helping us out on this podcast and sitting in, and we want to thank you. Dan, this was your concept. Let's let you describe what you mean by mating plumage. Okay, I actually stole this phrase from Lou Anders. Uh, Years and years ago, when he was a guest on this show, he referred to book covers as mating plumage. And I'm going to expand this to include titles and first lines. Uh, They are the things that make you see a book in a library or in a bookstore and say, wow, that interests me. That has caught my attention. I want to pick it up and read it. So let's start then. Covers, titles, and first lines. How important are these and to who? James? Well, I think, I mean, we all know the phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover that doesn't mean that people don't buy a book based on its cover i think you could never overstate the importance of a cover and i had a really interesting experience with the maze runner because they commissioned this artist philip straub to do this computer artwork of of the picture that would be on the cover and once they did that they went through seriously three or four months of scrapping that and trying other things um, and eventually came back to it. So a lot of money was spent. They got the feedback of Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all these places. And it just really hit me then just how much the publisher realizes how important those covers are. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the booksellers in there because I think for – in, in large degree, they're the ones who really care about the cover and the title being awesome because yeah, you know, well, it's, they want to sell it's, it. It's partially the marketing people. Um, one, one thing for new writers to kind of understand about a publishing company is um, editors and marketing people are very different. And they think differently. Editors are hired. They're book people. They generally get into this because they love books and they want to be editing great science fiction fantasy. Marketing people are marketing people. Most of the time, they are not book people. They went into it because they're, they're into marketing and they want to know how to sell a book. And conflict between those two groups with the marketing people saying, this isn't going to sell, and the editor saying, I love this book, is where you get a lot of the frustration for authors and for editors and for the marketing people not quite understanding each other or not, not agreeing with one another. Um, and a lot of these things, the mating plumage, has to do with the marketing people in, in the marketing, but also is marketing to the, to the, the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Doherty, uh, CEO of Tor, often says the, um, talks about a book cover as the best poster for your book you can get. That is your advertising space. In fact, he likes to put lots of books in bookstores because then you have lots of repetition of that advertisement. And, and yeah, you know, he'll talk about a paperback. You know, it costs you 50 cents to print a paperback. He says, that's 50 cents for a poster. If I could, if I could layer 1,000 of those paperbacks in, in, in a bookstore so that you have your poster plastered all over the place, I'd do it because that's a cheap method of advertising, and it's the best method of advertising. 
Okay, so let's toss this question at Julie, because she hasn't talked yet. What makes a cover good? Well, they say not to judge a book by its cover, but James I'm going to go ahead and say that you can. And the oh, reason so why is, is because nice. a picture is supposed to be worth a thousand words, and a thousand words in writing speech is, is a cool thing. A thousand words is a lot. And so you have this picture that's supposed to convey this message of what your book is about. And I think sometimes it's okay to judge a book by its cover because there are some really cool books out there. And I think that, yes, some authors get shafted by the marketing people, which, can I say sucks? I have. <laughs> which sucks. <laughs> yeah, I have read a book that has a really crappy cover and just never could quite get over it. Mm, Even really? though the book was decent, I just kept thinking of... You're shallow. I know. I am a shallow man. <laughs> no, no. The covers mean a lot. I've talked about before and written... Um, written uh, blog posts on how much, when I, in the early days, how much I judged based on, you can't read everything. Mm-hmm. And so I knew if they got a good cover artist that I, whose cover art I liked, that they were investing a lot in the book, the publisher was, and that said something to me. But, you know, like I said, this is a, this is a podcast for new writers. Um, they don't have any control over their cover. That's true. Absolutely. They don't. So let's talk about Well, let's talk Steven about this, why you don't. Why even you if don't. you're... Ooh, yeah. So let's talk about that. why. A lot of authors, or new authors get surprised by this. Um, usually you have a cover consultation clause, which only means they have to show it to you before they put it on the cover. I had mm-hmm. one of those. Yeah. Actually, I, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. It's... I actually hated my first cover. I mean, mm-hmm. hated it to the point where I was in tears. And I called them and said, this... this is awful. I can't believe you guys think that this is a good idea. And they said, Julie, let me explain something to you. You're a writer. You write books. We are publishers and we sell books. You don't mess with our job and we won't mess with yours. And that was pretty much it. So I went ahead and agreed that, okay, fine. I really don't know anything about selling books. I have no idea. I haven't taken these marketing classes. So yeah. sometimes it's good to just leave these people to their business. It is. Now, there's, there's something to be said for kind of making a stink and a fuss if you really think they're wrong. But they have a lot of experience with this, and it doesn't mean they're not going to have bombs. But what it does mean is, think, think of it this way. Um, new authors, they'll think about, this is my book. Well, it is your book. But what you are doing when you sell a book is you are licensing to the publisher the right to use those words in a novel. That is what you are doing. And they are taking that, that, those words and making a product out of them. You're not making the product. You get to be the artist. But then you license rights to them. Yeah, and in a, their case, they get to package it however they want. It's a joint project. I, yeah. you know, I, I always say that the editor's name should be more prevalent. I mean, it's not just a one-person show. What I love about covers is there is obviously no magical formula. And extremely different covers work in, in different ways, and I, I just love that. I mean, a cover that's all white with, like, one thing that's red on it, sometimes that works, or just a, a beautiful, awesome fantasy painting that's on the cover, sometimes that works. Um, I just, yeah. there's no magical formula, but somehow these guys figure it out usually. Uh, one thing that I learned uh, working with graphic designers for years, back when I had a real job, is that if you don't like the way something looks, and you, if you suggest... You know, if you tell them to change it, then the hackles will rise. But if you very politely say, I have certain issues, how would you resolve these? Then they're much more likely to listen. And I actually used that with the British version of my second book, Mr. Monster. The first cover they sent me was, I did not like it all. And I knew that I couldn't force them to change it. So I went to them very politely and I said, you know, I think it has these issues. This is why I think it has these issues. These are some changes I would suggest, but what do you guys think? Mm-hmm. And they actually did make uh, one of my changes and then suggested one of their own. 
And I think it's an incredible cover now. I think it looks very good. But it's because I went to them very politely. Right. Anyway, let's move on from covers and talk about titles and okay. first lines. And um, what, what makes those good? What, what makes a good title? Dan, you've had trouble with your titles. I've had a lot of trouble with my titles. Why I, have you I had trouble with your titles? I consider myself a very good titler. Um, the, the big title that everyone knows me for, I Am Not a Serial Killer, was actually the working title of my manuscript because I just gave up long ago trying to think of good titles. So I just put that on there as a joke and ran it through my writing group, and they said, yeah, that's actually a pretty good title. And so then my, it got in front of an editor who loved it and said, oh, no, you can't change that. That's an incredible title. And uh, I, it is. I mean, I think it's great now. I realize how effective it is. Going on book tour really hit home to me how strong the title is, how big of a factor it is when it comes to people picking up a book. The third book in my series I had originally called Full of Holes, which I love as a title. Um, none of my editors liked it, and I could never understand why. But then while I was on this book tour, I finally got it. And I'm like, okay, I Am Not a Serial Killer makes people really interested and they pick up the book. Full of Holes does not grab you the same way. Hmm. And so that's why we went back, and the third, t- title, third book title has been changed to I Don't Want to Kill You, because that has the same kind of grabby thing that will make people go, ooh, I wonder what that's about. I bet it's about puppies. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's a great comment. The, the last one, it's, I bet it's about puppies. Um, because what, what I look for in a title is I want to evoke, sometimes people only hear your title. People are talking about your book, or they'll say, oh, I read this book, it's this. And that's, that's all they'll hear, or they'll just see it. Sometimes they don't even get to see the cover. They just see the name listed you know, in, a, in a list of books that came out or something. And having a title that makes them stop and say, wow, I wonder what that's about, and I can guess what that's about at the same time, is what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Something that evokes, this feels like a fantasy novel. This feels like... Well, now, and yeah. you've got The Way of Kings coming out, yeah. and if I remember correctly, that title has been around much longer than, than the, the story attached to it. I came up with the title The Way of Kings first, and then and attached it, the story. It's a fantastic yeah. title, and so finding a great story to fit with it makes a lot of sense. I think, I think a title does, for me what the first line should do, what the first paragraph should do, what the first chapter should do. And that's makes it makes me want to find out what that title means. Which is it, why it would be considered mating plumage, right? Yeah, it creates its own mystery. I mean, not to make your head any bigger than it is, but I am not a serial killer, okay? I mean, how can you hear that title and not think, what the crap is that book about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it makes you want to find out the first, that's the first mystery of the book is the title has created a mystery. And I think that's what a good title does for me. I agree. I, I had a book that I thought was a, a decent title, and then my publisher informed me I was wrong, and changed it to My Not So Fairy Tale Life. And it's a kind of a long and flippant title, and yet it is one that I have found when I've been on book tour that it has sold really well because of that. It, it's long and flippant, and yet it, yeah. it resonates with whoever it is that's looking at it. Well, and that genre actually does have a history of long and flippant titles, um, and so it works. Um, we should probably pause for an advertisement. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I agree. Uh, to talk about our book of the week, we're going to let James promo his own book again. Oh, you are so sweet. My book is called The Maze Runner. Which is a great title, by Thank the way. Thank you. Makes you wonder, why is someone running through the maze, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Maze Runner... And it is a young adult novel about a bunch of teenagers in a future dystopian post-apocalyptic world who are being put through some type of horrible experiment trying to escape. And it is definitely available on Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse, and you can download a free copy of James's excellent book, which I have read and highly recommend to you. And you get a 15-day free trial of Audible, and you can get audiobooks for a very inexpensive price at Audible. So it's very much worth your time checking into it. All right. Let's talk about first lines. Brandon, I believe you have an example for us. Yes. Kaylin, um, a, a friend of ours from our writing group, handed me a Barbara Hamley book and said, read this one. The worst thing about knowing that Gary Fairchild had been dead for a month was seeing him every day at work. (laughs) (laughs) That is an awesome first line. That is great. Okay, panelists, why is that such a good first line? Well, I always go back to it it creates a mystery that I want to know the answer to. Why is this guy being seen at work if he's dead? Yeah. It's the mystery. It's the, um, the, the reason that one works great is because you laugh at it a little bit and then you wonder. Um, It sets the tone for what this Mm -hmm. book is going to be. You know there are going to be supernatural elements. You know that that it it, it sounds like it's going to be fun. Um, You've at least got it, you know, since it's in third person, um, you've got a character that's that's kind of got a snarky attitude about things. Um, Otherwise, they just wouldn't have led with a line like that. Um, And it, it just, it's an exciting hook of a story. The fact that it mentions work, the line, every day at work, really does give it, you know, kind of a, like you said, it sets a strong tone. You know, this is almost a workplace thing. This is, it takes something very crazy, like seeing a dead guy, and combines it with something very mundane. You go to work every day. Mm. And I think a a hook is a a good way to have put that, in that does your first line give you the right to move to a second line? I mean, did you earn that second line? I mean, readers need to be caught immediately, Mm -hmm. or they might not go to the second line. Well, and I, I've said before that I don't believe, I think that sometimes reader or new writers focus too much on the first line, the first line hook. Um, this one is a zinger, and we've talked about that before. You can, a great zinger is a wonderful way to start a book, but you can have a great hook without having it be a zinger, without having it be the sort of line that you read to the, an audience and they all laugh and say, oh, that's cool. You can have first lines that aren't like that. Um, you can have first lines that introduce a conflict and, and, and raise a question without, making, without it being such mm-hmm. a zinger. Yeah, well, and uh, 
I wish we had a copy of Neuromancer here so that I could read it exactly, but that's one of my favorite first lines, and all it's doing is kind of setting a tone for the book. Uh, I believe it's something along the lines of, the sky was the dull gray color of a television tuned to a dead channel. It's not a zinger. It doesn't make you laugh. It doesn't mm-hmm. even tell you anything about the story, but it's very evocative, and it's very cool. Yeah, I think you nailed it kind of earlier when you said anything that creates a mood or puts you in a certain atmosphere that makes you want to keep reading. I mean, one of the classic examples that now gets parodied is the first line in A Wrinkle in Time is, it was a dark and stormy night. I think people forget that that actually really was from a real book. And, I mean, anyone who likes to read likes dark and stormy nights. I don't care who you are. But just the mood of that makes you, ooh, it's dark, it's stormy. It makes me want to read, read on. Um, so let, let's also point out that uh, these titles, I mean, th- these first lines that we're talking about, they may be the first line of the published book. Yeah. I doubt very strongly that they were the first line written by that author when he or she sat down to write the book. Yeah, I usually um, throw away first chapters first. And oftentimes I'll add a new first chapters. Way of Kings, um, which, we, which has been mentioned, I started the first chapter and I wrote the whole book and I'm like, ah, I really need a prologue and added a prologue. And then I'm like, ah, I really need something before that. I went back two chapters. <laughs> um, and so I had to come up with a new introduction to the book twice after I've started it, um, which, uh, which was very frustrating, but also it pushed me. And then we have three first chapters that all have pretty good opening lines. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, uh, the book that I'm just finishing up is about a schizophrenic guy. And I thought, when I sat down to write, you know what would be a cool first line for this is, who are you? Because that would set an interesting you know, premise. And I intend to, to maintain that. I guess we'll see what my editor says, but... So that is a case where I actually did come up with first line first. Um, Julie, what can you tell us about first lines? Is the first line itself really that important? How, how much time do you have? Do you have a whole paragraph? Do you have a whole page? I would dare bet you would have a page. I'm actually the type of person who I give somebody 50 pages. If they don't catch me in 50 pages, I'm done, and I, can, I give myself permission to put the book down. But there's a lot of great books out there that have amazing first lines. Uh, Jessica Day George's Dragon Slippers. It was my aunt's idea to give me to the dragon. That's funny stuff. You think, what kind of aunt does that to their knees? <laughs> I'm going to be given to a dragon. It's a fun first line. There's a lot of really amazing things that you can do with the first line. It, it sets up humor if your character is humorous. It, it sets up the entire book, and that's an important thing to do. So yes, it's important, but I wouldn't say that people are going to actually put down the book based on the first yeah. line, um, I would say. I was talking to my agent uh, a couple of days ago, and she said that she knows within the first page if she doesn't want a book, but it takes her you know, a good chapter <laughs> before she knows if she does want a book. Uh, I'll also, we, we got to close this, but let me say really quickly that on uh, Orson Scott Card's website, Hat Rack River, Hat Rack River he's, they, they have like a writing group thing where people can come on and, and critique, and they have, I think they call it the Bain Rule, where it's 13 lines. Because that is what will appear on your first page is 13 lines. And I think that that's a pretty good gauge of you know, how much time you have in a bookstore situation to grab somebody's attention. Anyway, uh, let's toss a writing prompt at Julie. Julie, give us a writing prompt. Oh, that's nice. Put me on the spot. Yeah, we'll a writing this. prompt. Um, let's see. You can use the word monkey if you want. 
I can use the word monkey. Really? It has to be pithy and brilliant. Oh, pithy and brilliant. How about James buys a new pet monkey. James, <laughs> James buys a new pet monkey. No, that's not a good writing prompt. Um, I can't believe you did this to me, and I'm blank. Uh-huh. I am so blank. Can James, give us a James? writing prompt. Uh, Brandon and Julie go on a safari and get attacked by monkeys. <laughs> All right, there, you, there go. you go. You are out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 